0: NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP
1: Radio. Welcome listeners. This is NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. Today is April 26, 2021, and we are talking with NWP Writers Council member Don Zancanella. Don and I will be talking about his new novel, Concord, as well as teaching and writing. I'm your host, Tanya Baker, at the NWP in Berkeley, California. Welcome, Don.
0: Thanks. Um, thanks for the invitation. I'm happy to be here.
1: I'm very excited, as you know, to talk to you about this book. But before we get started, maybe we could just have you introduce yourself to our listeners.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a former middle school and high school teacher and uh, also a uh, spent uh, over 25 years at the University of New Mexico in uh, English teacher education. Um, I'm now a full-time writer, uh, but I'm also a former writing project uh, participant and director. And so I feel like a lot of my career has been intertwined with the writing project.
1: Indeed, and it's gonna mean that people are really interested in how all of those parts of your life have intertwined and how uh, and especially because you might be living everybody's in our community's best life, having <laughs> had a rich career as a teacher and now being a full-time writer. Mm-hmm. Um, as a writing project director and a teacher and a re- writer, our listen our listeners who are often teacher writers themselves are always interested in hearing how you've throughout your career balanced those different parts of your lives. What does your, or what has your writing teaching life, looked and sounded and felt like over time?
0: I think from the very beginning of my uh, teaching and writing, I wanted to find ways to combine the two. Um, But at the first, I think I struggled, uh, because I couldn't see how you could do that. Uh, People would say, well, you can write during the summer or something like that. Um, And, uh, but then early on, and this has been a long time ago, probably um, in the 1980s, I Uh, took a series of workshops with a legendary writing teacher named Donald Murray. And he was, um, he was uh, visiting at the University of Wyoming and I was teaching uh, in Laramie, Wyoming. And it was kind of set of open workshops that was, had uh, teachers of of all levels, uh, teachers from the University of Wyoming, as well as uh, public school teachers. And uh, his whole view of teaching and writing is not just that you can do it, but that's kind of the whole purpose of being a writer and teacher is to intertwine them as completely as you can. And so from him, I kind of learned to not see that as a problem or an obstacle, but to really lean into the, the connection between the two. Um, and so after that, after those that set of workshops, which was very early in my career, I started to be more intentional about how to connect writing and teaching and to try not to see that as a problem to be solved but as a set of opportunities uh, so um, the first book of stories I published, which is again quite a long time ago uh, a lot of those stories had their beginning in middle school classrooms where I was right doing my own writing uh, with the students I was working with and I think um, uh, I mean it's certainly part of the writing project uh, way of Working, and I learned that from being part of writing projects. But I think that I, um, I figured out that I needed to go beyond modeling and, and to really try, find ways not just, to, um, not just to use my work as a writer as a source of insights for teaching writing, but to actually try to bring as much of my writing self into the classroom as I could. And I think that was uh, made for a big change. And so uh, since then, I've always written with and around students. I've always tried to be transparent about my writing. um, And that includes the hard parts like rejection and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't have a particular, well, actually I do. I have some, you know, some practices, I guess, uh, that maybe we can talk about later if we have more time, but in general, that's the a sort of profile of my connections between writing and teaching. Um, I just always kept asking myself, how can I be a kind of complete writer among my students rather than feel guilty about my writing or feel like it's just something that I can do around the edges.
1: The 80s and early 90s were a great time to, a writing teacher, weren't they? Yes, yeah. Taking yeah. classes from Donald Murray, like yeah. re- rethinking the relationship between students and teachers. So I'll let you leave that hanging and we'll try to come back to it in the okay. end. I'm All sure right. people would like to hear what yeah, some I, of your practices I, I could, are. I could
0: talk a lot about it, but I, I don't wanna get us too much off the track.
1: To, to... Because you know, I'm dying to talk about this <laughs> novel. <laughs> uh, this is a beautiful piece of fiction conquered, it's a piece of historical fiction. And I thought I'd start uh, by thinking about that with you. Is this Mm a genre you often write in and what can you tell us about writing historical fiction?
0: My initial response is to say that I don't think about it as anything special. I think Mm -hmm. about it as fiction. Um, I uh, have done a lot of writing that isn't historical I'm, I have a, uh, collection of stories that I'm pulling together. Now, uh, I don't, I think maybe one out of a dozen is historical. Um, so I, so that's not how I view my identity as a fiction writer, mm-hmm. but it's something that I've done a lot of and feel comfortable with. I have a, another, uh, historical novel coming out next year and, um, And so I can't say that I don't do that or or that Concord is an anomaly of some kind. Um, I do like the research part. Mm. Uh, I like uh, it's easy to get caught up in the research and just keep doing that and doing that. Um, One of the advantages of historical fiction, at least the way I do it, where I'm often writing about uh, people who actually lived and events that actually happened, Mm -hmm. is it... uh, it gives you a set of characters and a plot that Mm. you don't have to invent. But of course, that's a, that's also a problem because there are, uh, you have to live with those people and you have to live with those events. And unless you are going to be really, um, you know, just kind of play fast and loose with the history, you, you have to take those things into account. So it's good and bad, I think. And, uh, Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, I think that I can, I, 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 sometimes I really like it, but sometimes I feel hemmed in by it. Mm
1: Um, Um, you said that you like the research and Mm -hmm. as I could imagine, (laughs) you get, you could get caught up in it and never (laughs) go to the writing. Um. So for this novel, for Concord, how much research did you do or what did that look like?
0: Uh, I try to use primary sources as much as I can. And partly that's because you you get language from the primary sources you wouldn't get anywhere else. You uh, get a sense of the way people talked uh, from their letters and from their journals. And you also get just quirky details that you wouldn't find necessarily in a biography. But I also read biographies to get a sense of the whole. Um, of course, the internet is tremendous because you can find out uh, things that um, you can quickly check facts that in the past, I don't know how people did that, how they were able to fact check historical fiction. Um, so, you know, that's that's most of the research I did. And, uh, and you do kind of need, to know when to stop. I think you need to be able to say, I have enough to write from, or I have a a kind of urgency Mm -hmm. uh, about the writing that I want to move forward with. Right. Um, There was a a man I took uh, classes with at the University of Denver named Robert Richardson, who went on to be one of the really eminent uh, Thoreau biographers. Uh. And, he i think gave me a you know i learned a lot from him it was in a master's program and i didn't take Mm -hmm. a lot of courses from him but uh but i think i just had a he he gave me a feel for the time maybe um and a kind of passion for it that i uh i suspect lies kind of beneath this novel even though i didn't figure that out till after i was um halfway through or three quarters of the way through writing it. Mm-hmm. And of course, Thoreau's interesting, or, or not even Thoreau, but the transcendentalists or, okay. or American romantics or whatever you want to call them are interesting just because there's so much written about them. Mm-hmm. So the idea that you can even come close to exhausting the research is, you know, makes no sense. Uh, it's hard to think of anybody or any group of people that have had more written about them. Um, so that's another challenge is there's just so much out there.
1: So you've um, you've begun to answer my next questions, um, <laughs> um, perhaps anticipating them. One was this question about how you landed on on Concord. Mm-hmm. Uh, I myself grew up in New England and um, then was an English teacher and taught American literature for years, and um, and I. Have, you know, I've always been interested in them. As you say, there's so much written about them. Um, so you have given us part of the backstory. Is there anything else you'd say about why this mm-hmm. book?
0: Yeah, I think um, even when I taught American literature to high school students, I was, I, I was conscious of the value of thinking about the authors as real people Mm -hmm. And that especially with teenagers, Mm -hmm. it was useful to say, you know, who, who who were, who actually were these people? What sort of person was Nathaniel Hawthorne? Um, And I think most good uh, English teachers are, uh, are aware that bringing authors to life can kind of serve a purpose because it makes it seem less mysterious and kind of, you know, the sort of magisterial author who uh, appears with this finished manuscript is, is kind of a problem for young readers or for inexperienced readers. And so if you can humanize them, that's great. And so I, I think that actually is part of the roots of this uh, novel is thinking about those people, uh, the people in the book as you know, real young people. Um, I, another thing that I think uh, well, a lot I know led to this book is there, I read a, uh, a novel by an Irish writer named uh, Colm Toybean. I think that's mm, how you pronounce it. Yes, name. I love him. And, and uh, he wrote a novel about 10 years ago, uh, maybe a bit more, called The Master about Henry James. Oh, I don't think
1: I've read that one. And,
0: uh, and I thought it was just tremendous. And he's also the, the person who wrote Brooklyn, if you've seen yes. that movie. Uh, and I, I really like his writing, but I thought that the novel The Master was tremendous. And I think that made me say, oh, I this is an interesting uh, way to think about fiction. And um, so all of those things led to it uh, in various parts. I don't, I think the, I'll say one more thing about it is I do tend to get ideas based on just kind of images that I think are interesting. And uh, there's a famous anecdote from the novelist John Falls. Uh, about the French lieutenant's woman about visualizing this woman standing by the sea and the whole novel kind of unfurling from that image of her standing by the sea in Lyme Regis or wherever it was um, I wouldn't say it's it's that the inspiration is quite that dramatic for me but I do think that um, that I, I I remember reading about Margaret fuller teaching at that school in Providence and um, that really stuck with me. And the other image I remember that I actually think I heard about on a visit to Concord before I even started writing this novel was, um, Nathaniel Hawthorne and Sophia Peabody, uh, going to move into that house, the old manse as newlyweds. And so those were both really vivid images. And I think, uh, I think I felt like that was enough to start uh, to start writing or imagining more about them.
1: That's amazing. I'm gonna try to hold on to the images more carefully now. Yeah. Like, oh, that could be enough. Um, I also thought. Um, I mean, you've said this, but I just want to emphasize this. I think one of the things that's compelling about this novel and um, I don't know if it's particularly in this sort of uprooted time we're living through, but this idea of imagining people who become set in our minds before they were famous or important or knew who they were, um, looking at how, you know what was their young adulthood is. Um, uh, I think it's brilliant, and I'm and. I found it very compelling. So I don't know if you, you wanna say any more about that, but, um, or how you got to that decision, but.
0: Yeah, I don't remember what, how I stumbled on that, but it it ends up being partly just um, efficient, if that's not like too, yeah. you know, um, too mechanical of a word. <laughs> that um, that uh, I I kind of can't imagine writing a novel that covers, the whole life of all of those figures, because the, I mean, Margaret Fuller gets on a boat and goes to Italy, and uh, Hawthorne writes the Scarlet Letter, and Thoreau moves to Walden Pond, and all. There's just so much right. that uh, that it seemed that at some point I realized, oh, I could just stop, and you know, write about the, the things that people don't know that much about, right. and leave the rest. For people to fill in in a sense with all, what they what many people kind of already know or I mean some of the right. things they already know so uh yeah that's a it's um it was a good discovery that 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 would work just at, like as a structural element and the and the um the novel that I have coming out next year which I can talk about because it's already been announced and everything is is a novel that that's almost, I would say a companion piece to this one about um, Mary Shelley. And um, it's, it's about Mary and Shelley and Percy Shelley, but again, beginning in their youth and then stopping. Um, and uh, so that one, I, I definitely said, oh, I can do this again. And I can, uh, you know, that, that structure will work for me a second time with these particular people.
1: Oh, exciting does that book have a set title yet
0: uh the title that it was announced is a storm in the stars um but you know uh i think publishers sometimes like to change titles yeah uh, so we'll see what happens
1: well i'm looking forward to that now i'm very excited mm-hmm. um Before we talk a little bit more about the craft that you bring to this novel, I am just out of personal curiosity because I found I was so uh, attached to all of these characters and the world that you'd created. Um, I'm wondering if there's a character with whom you feel particularly aligned.
0: Um, I really like the discovery of the Peabody sisters Mm. because I, I just didn't know much about them. There is a yes. great, there's a, there's a tremendous biography about them by Megan Marshall, who also wrote a tremendous biography of Margaret Fuller. So she's, um, uh, and I think it's just called. Might just be called the Peabody Sisters, but I'm not sure. Um, but uh, but I didn't know about them, and I thought I, you know, I think they're all really interesting. I think, the um, Elizabeth Peabody and, and her start I mean start to realize that she was everywhere doing everything in Boston Mm. and Cambridge and and uh, Concord of that time and um, she was you know she knew everybody and she was sort of making things happen and so I I, those would be the people that I got most excited about discovering I'm actually probably less interested in Thoreau than you know people might expect I mean it's Certainly, a big part of the novel, and, and he, his chapter starts the novel. But I just think he's. It was hard not to write about him in the way that everybody knows him to be. I think right. the the relationship with his brother helped a lot because I didn't know much about the relationship with his brother, or his sister actually. The um, Helen I think is a a, a minor character that I'll, always, um, you know, made me happy to write about.
1: Great. (laughs) Um, I'm going to move on, though I could just talk about these characters as (laughs) characters all day. But um, I want to say that I think the thing I love most about this novel, and I think you've began to allude to how it happened, but I would love to hear you unpack it for us a little bit more, is that each time I opened it, I truly felt transported into a different world. I mean, I wrote to you immediately, because I knew I was going to interview you, I wrote to you immediately the day after I finished saying, you know, I'm heartbroken, because I'm no longer in that world. And I, and I was in that space where you've finished a novel that's so transporting. You don't want to go to a totally different world and you're stuck, <laughs> like bereft without <laughs> that space to live in anymore, carrying it around in your head a little bit. I've been trying to think about all the ways that that was accomplished and thought, well, maybe you can enlighten us. Um, how did this novel become so, such a world unto itself? And how much do you think about world building or atmosphere when you're creating? How much is in, I think, the language when you're talking about going back to primary sources, the cadence, the diction, the tone?
0: Mm-hmm. I can talk a little bit about what I'm aware of. There's probably a lot that I'm not aware of, but mm-hmm. um, I think one of the things I'm aware of is using present tense. I think that present tense, some people have, have um, you know, difficulties with present tense, uh, or they, it can seem like an affectation, I think, maybe to some people in historical fiction, but it's very comfortable for me. And I do think it gives it an immediacy that would not necessarily be present if you, strictly in past tense. Um, So that's, I think that's part of it. Uh, I'm also really aware that you can overdo um, detail that I think people expect, uh, I think that people who haven't written much historical fiction uh, can think that it's all about having just tons of uh, detail. And um, I think that, you know, less is more a lot of the time, and you it, you can, if you that it's better to be suggestive than to really, um, than to really uh, try to talk about every piece of furniture in the room, or yeah. every piece of clothing that someone's wearing, or every building that they pass when they walk. And I think little bits and pieces work a lot better. Um, there's a uh, I read somewhere trying to think of the author who said it. I think it was an author of a children's book, but who said something to the effect that you probably shouldn't include a detail unless people of the time would have been sort of consciously thinking and talking about that detail. Mm. And the example she gave was, uh, for instance, the brand and, uh, you know, kind of, of uh, stove that's in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. But when we walk into our kitchen, we don't say I'm going to use my Westinghouse <laughs> stove or oven, right? Or, or I notice that our Westinghouse stove or oven is is is, you know, whatever. Um, and yet it that's a, I think a like a rookie mistake that some people make with historical fiction is they find that detail, it's so exciting that they want to include it. And it ends up um, Taking away from that immersive effect that
1: mm-hmm. you
0: get when you have just enough to um, to live in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I'm aware of. Um, yeah, I think those would be the mo- the most the things that I'm, I'm I, I worry about the, the first person because I do know some people. I hear people say, "Oh, I can't stand." novels written, in, or not first person, in in, um, in present tense rather. Yeah, um, so anyway.
1: Well, I had spent a lot of time thinking about what was in the book, especially sort of the cadence of it, the diction and the tone, uh, the language usage, but it hadn't occurred to me as, you know, because it's brilliantly absent what you, left out and how that makes it different sometimes than a sort of, I think you're right, that accumulation of detail can almost be othering. So you're like, well, that, it, it does what you're, it pushes against the thing I think you're trying to do in this novel of bringing people to life as real people, real young people. Um, and you're, I mean, I think I'll take that advice really deeply to heart and it'll be another way, another lens that I can see other pieces of historical fiction through it's really helpful
0: I think one example uh, the um, the Hillary Mantel books uh, will fall and those I think if you actually look at those it's remarkable how little actual historical detail of the kind that we you know think belongs in historical fiction is in those books I think it's so much of it is about thoughts and feelings and Uh, And there are physical details, but it just isn't I mean as long as they are uh, those books are it's that most of it is not Bunches of historical detail
1: You're right. And again, I love those books so much and also felt very transported by them and probably for the same reason I would say another thing that Concord and those books share that I really appreciate and I one of the things I couldn't stop talking about when I finished Concord is we're so used to seeing these historical f- characters sort of reified by everything we know about their importance in history but every day they just get up and put on their clothes and go to work <laughs> mm-hmm. they don't know that there' more is Henry David Thoreau certainly can't know that there'll be more written about him than right anybody else from the time he lived. I mean, he's like hanging out in a cabin. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I love when Margaret Fuller in your book comes to this realization that it's time for her to move beyond Concord and she's uncertain. Many of them throughout the time are uncertain whether this collection of people are like the cutting edge intellectuals or just kind of quirky.
0: Yeah, one thing <laughs> One thing that I, that, uh, now that you mentioned it, one thing that I'm, that I'm aware that I did is I did find it um, initially pretty intimidating. And I even wondered, is this crazy to write about these people who are sort of recognized geniuses and, and to try to be inside their minds and thoughts and feelings. But uh, the, I guess you'd call it a trick almost, but the, what I uh, told myself is that when I was at the University of New Mexico, and also working in my profession and so on, I knew some people who I would consider geniuses, who I would consider like, you know, just mm-hmm. really brilliant people. But I also know that if I were sitting in a uh, in a committee meeting with those people, or or better yet, if I were at a party with those people or something like that, they were just normal people, and they didn't they didn't I didn't see their genius. I did see it in their writing, or maybe if they were, you know, talking about their area of expertise. But I, when they were talking about their kids, or when they were, you know, whatever, I they they seemed like, like everyone else. And so I kept reminding myself of those people that I knew, um, uh, and how they really were ordinary, you know, in quotes people in their daily lives, and right. so.
1: Wow. Well, Don, thank you so much for um, talking, sharing a little bit about this novel, giving us a preview of a new novel. That's very exciting. Um, I wanna um, sort of step back out a little bit and talk about, um, you know, we both spend a lot of time with people who write and teach. So I wanna sort of step back into talking about teaching a little bit. And I wanna say that um, this, book and then recently for me the Madeline Miller books Mm Circe and the Song of Achilles they both are historical fiction that fictionized something that I taught Mm -hmm. when I was a high school English teacher and in reading both books I had two feelings I had like a student feeling which was what was I doing when I was studying, you know, <laughs> Greek mythology or the transcendentalists, while you or Madeline Miller were imagining these rich lives of people, what was I doing? Like I feel like I missed a whole opportunity as a student. And then as a teacher as well, I was I, I thought, oh, if I could reteach, if I could go back and teach American history or American literature. And teach the transcendentalists with this book in hand how different that experience might be for young people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, thinking about myself as a student, thinking about myself as a teacher, thinking about you as a teacher writer, um, I, I guess, I'm asking, what is the role of fiction in the study of? in school, I guess, what's mm-hmm. a, what do we, what's fiction for maybe? Can you mm-hmm. tell me what the question is? <laughs> okay, <laughs> <Answer>. <laughs> um,
0: I, I think you're asking, there's sort of two questions. One is the, that um, the kind of goes back to um, different ways we have of bringing kind of uh, canonical texts or, or figures to life. Mm. And, um, I, and I do think that, I mean, there was a time period when when, studying authors was kind of looked down upon i mean that was part of the new critics and so on was to uh, cut off the author and say that it, it isn't about the author it's about the text and uh and i think for teenagers especially that um bringing those authors to life can make a big difference and and i think that that um you know there are lots of different ways to do it but i, uh, I would hope that uh, a book like concord ha- can play a role in doing that. I mean, that's not why I wrote it or what I had in mind, but I can right. see now that it has that potential. I think that fiction, um, I do think that it's unfortunate that we don't do more fiction writing in schools. I, I understand mm-hmm. with the pre- academic pressures and everything, why we don't, but I, I think there's a place for it. And I do think there are a couple things that we do that are problematic with um, with our teaching fiction, at least in the places and and that I've seen it, um, let's see if I can explain this. And it's a little bit complicated, but let me see if I can explain it clearly. I think when we have students write memoir, for instance, we judge it against partly against oral storytelling. That we say, "Oh, this is a you know this is a great piece of writing about your." About your grandmother, and um, and I'm I'm reading it kind of in the way that I would read and respond to a story you would tell me about your grandmother. Um, I think as but I think as English teachers, the models we have in our head for fiction and that we judge against tend to be these kind of published authors that we all revere, and so when we ask Kids to write fiction, we are in a sense the bar is too high. We we expect them to write like these fiction writers that we've been reading forever, um, and I don't think we do that with most other forms. We don't. We definitely don't do it with um, with academic like you know essays. Uh, we don't. Uh, we in that case we kind of judge student. Work against other students. Like this is a pretty good eleventh grade
1: mm-hmm.
0: research paper or whatever. We don't say, "Well, this research paper doesn't seem to have the elements that some yeah. thing would have in a professional journal of some kind or whatever." And so, does that make does that make yeah, sense? It makes a lot of sense. Okay,
1: yeah. Exactly. I, and
0: and so I think that um, for me, the solution was to be more experimental with fiction and to not worry so much about writing complete stories that had beginnings, middles and ends or anything like that. But um, but to do things like uh, trying to fictionalize a piece of uh, personal narrative, like what happens if you take something you've written about yourself and try to write it in the third person or try to set it in another time or place and that kind of experiment, experimenting I think opens some doors. The other thing I think that's happened almost since I really stopped teaching is the explosion of, um, of short fictional forms like flash fiction or micro fiction. And uh, that I think opens all kinds of possibilities because it's, it's absolutely possible to think about eighth graders writing a piece of flash fiction where a story that has enough development to feel like a whole story starts to feel like, seem like it's beyond the, mm-hmm. you know, beyond the capabilities of a lot of um, young writers, just in, purely in terms of length, if, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. I think that has a lot of, there's, a, I think that fiction can do a lot of things for us. Um, and and it can be part of the whole mix of fluency building and, and uh, excitement about writing. And, you know, I think that Tom Newkirk has a, book about fiction writing that's just out, maybe, um, and I'm excited to see it because I think he's he always is tremendous, and uh, I'm curious about what he has to say about writing fiction.
1: It's really funny that you mentioned him because when you were saying, well, I understand why we don't teach fiction for all these reasons, I wrote down Mind made for story. Cause I think I had gone down a path for several years, like saying, yes, I guess we need to do more argument writing more um, informational writing with kids. But I feel like I'm circling back around to that's incomplete without mm-hmm. story writing and narrative making and uh, playing with forms. I don't know. So, um, okay, Don. I, I feel like you've nudged up against this thing that you promised in the beginning. So the last question I'm gonna ask you for all the NWP teachers out there is, um, is there anything you'd, else you'd wanna say about practices, the practices you use in teaching and bringing your whole writing self into that? Mm-hmm. Writing.
0: I think so, yeah, so are, my, are, are those that I just mentioned. Right. Um, but I think that um, I think that uh, part of it means teaching literature differently. It means teaching literature in a more writerly way and talking more yes. about the about craft in the way that a writer talks about it instead of about literature in the way that a critic talks about it mm. and I think a lot of writing project teachers already do that but I I think we could do even more of that um, and and blur the boundaries um, I think that integrating fiction into the teaching of literature is also you know has lots of potential because uh, I think it's we still tend to draw a line that literature teaching involves writing about literature, but not writing okay. literature. Um, and I almost think that's a, like a historical accident that happened at some point that we decided that writing fiction wasn't part of teaching literature. Um, I think, uh, I, I often wonder why art programs in schools, tend to focus almost exclusively on making art and include a little bit of you know, art history and learning about other artists. Um, and the same is true of music programs. They tend to focus on making music. And, and so uh, the, I think you can, you can make an argument and I actually think even back to Louise Rosenblatt makes this argument at some point mm-hmm. that writing fiction Or writing poetry and and so on is a legitimate, not just it's not just a form of writing, it's also a form of literature study. And that we can learn a lot about how literature works from trying our hand at writing it. And then in terms of the the way to do that, um again, I think experimentation is a uh is a just to see what it feels like. And I do think there's a a feeling of, that almost kind of clicks into place of writing fiction that just doesn't happen in other forms of writing. Mm -hmm. Um, Once I was, uh, I I had been reading um, 100 years of solitude Mm -hmm. at the same time that I was teaching eighth graders and I thought well what happens if, what if we tried to invent a imaginary place and uh, that had kind of, um, you know, that was similar to the place we live, but it was also sort of strange and otherworldly. Mm. And uh, that to me, I, I, I remember seeing students go, oh, that this, this feels different from most of the writing we do right. to start to imagine our way into this, into this um, different place. But it's different from just saying, like, write a science fiction story which right. I think seldom works, but right. to have that kind of uh, maybe smaller uh, mm-hmm. experiment. Um, yeah. Yeah, I also think it doesn't hurt to be uh, a little more forgiving than we are with students who are trying to write in um, in uh, in the forms that are all around them, like, uh, you know, sort of that, that feel like thrillers or that feel like yeah. um, like, ho- like horror movies, right. because I do know a lot of a lot of teachers have a real problem with that. They say I, I told them to write a story and they came back with this monster thing that is just like something that's derivative from uh, television and or from the movies. And if you're a you know an eighth grader, that's I don't think that's maybe a terrible thing. I think exactly. we can at least work
1: with it. Exactly. So. Yeah. Don, thank you. Thank you for writing Concord. Thank you for um, sharing this time with us to talk about it and about teaching and writing. Uh, listeners, you want to read this book. Mm-hmm. The title is Concord. The author is Don Zancanella, and the book is published by Serving House Books. It's available all the places you buy your books we would recommend Bookshop, an online bookstore with a mission to financially support local independent bookstores. If you buy Concord at Bookshop, you can designate a portion of your sales to the National Writing Project or your favorite local bookstore. Thank you. Thank Thank you you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks. A production of the National Writing Project.
0: NWP. NWP Radio.